It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. A Microsoft update to last week's Microsoft update in the news. We'll also talk about dirt boxes. They're flying over you all the time. And Steve will answer some questions as well, including a stone DVD. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 482, recorded November 18th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 201. Security Now is brought to you by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. And by Harry's. For guys who want a great shaving experience for a fraction of what they're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code SECURITYNOW when you check out. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online. And there could be no better host for this show than Mr. G, Stephen Gibson. He is the man in charge at the Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com, and also uh, creator of many useful tools, including Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Hello, Steve. Yo, Leo. Great to be with you. Um... We've, this is a Q and A um, after last week's coverage um, of certificate transparency, uh, and in fact, we may be doing another show on certificate stuff next week as a consequence of some just breaking news this morning: an announcement from the EFF, uh, Mozilla, and the University of Michigan about the EFF's initiative to make certificates. Web browsing certificates, you know, web server certificates, the kind we're always talking about, both free and safe to issue and somehow kind of auto-renewing. So there's a new protocol called ACME uh, we'll be talking about. Um, And then also, boy, Microsoft is having a rough go of it for their patches in November uh, one dropped today that they'd held Uh-oh. back. They An out-of-bands update? Wow. Yeah. They they revised one that was the, the most important one last week. Turned out to have problems with it. Um, there's an update to Firefox with a cool new feature that I like. I wanted to chat with you about the so-called flying dirt boxes, which... Uh, <laughs> I'm an expert in flying dirt boxes. Yes, I I heard you on Twit, and I think that's great. Peeved uh, me off a little bit, so I'm yeah. Well, rightly so, and many other people. You can imagine the ACLU's having you know is on oxygen. Yeah. Uh, uh, Also, an update on the cellular provider Super Cookies. Um, Some information, some news about WhatsApp, BitTorrent Sync. And this is a Q&A. So since we had so much stuff to talk about, oh, also some in- in- interesting miscellaneous stuff. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about Interstellar. Um, and also Ooh, upcoming, you saw it, eh? Ah, yeah, also an thoughts. upcoming movie or a production about Alan Turing's life yes. that looks really good. I've, I've, I talked to somebody who saw it who says it's amazing. 
Oh, I'm so glad. And yeah. then we have a Q&A. But so much going on there that I just found five questions. So a half-size, a half-pint Q&A, uh, which I think will pretty much round out uh, a good podcast. Excellent. So lots, to, lots and lots of stuff today. Holy camoly. <laughs> well, before we start, let me talk about PagerDuty and uh, our, our, one of our newest sponsors, and we're really glad to have them, at P-A-G-E-R-D-U-T-Y dot com slash twit. T-W-I-T. If you rely on software and services that have to be up, if they're mission critical, you need to know about PagerDuty. It's an essential tool, the hub, uh, in effect, to your operations. PagerDuty connects all your systems into a single view where you can see critical events across all your monitoring tools. Uh, there are already 100 ready-to-use integrations, including, as you can see on their page, um, Nagios, New Relic, Keynote, App Dynamics, but with their full API, you can roll your own. When incidents occur, you'll decrease your resolution time. The right team gets notified right away, and based on uh, on-call schedules, uh, that it knows. You know, you already it already has that information. It'll uh, it'll and, and personalized alerting preferences from each of your employees. It'll contact the right person right away if alerts are missed. No problem. It'll automatically escalate issues to another team member until somebody responds. I love that. We have a lot of people who uh, use PagerDuty in our chat room. When we first started doing the ad, they said, oh, oh, PagerDuty, yeah. You can decrease the noise, too, because uh, incidents are automatically filtered and deduped. Make sure that only actionable alerts are delivered. So if you've ever been on PagerDuty and, and, you've, and you've received a bunch of dumb, bogus or repetitive alerts, you'll be very happy to hear about that. PagerDuty is relentless when it comes to reliability, fully distributed across multiple data centers and multiple hosting providers. You don't have to worry about them ever going down. There are also multiple contact method providers per method, so you will never, ever miss an alert. You can customize it to fit your needs, your team, and how they work regardless of location or size. PagerDuty. It's so good, it's trusted by Microsoft, by GitHub, by Boeing, by Nike, Pinterest, by Box. Get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. Visit pagerduty.com slash twit to sign up for a free 14-day trial for as little as $19 a month. Wow. You can increase your uptime with PagerDuty for as little as $19 a month. And again, pagerduty.com slash twit, when you go there... You'll see uh, you can enter a chance to win a PagerDuty exclusive on-call survival kit. PagerDuty.com slash twit. Oh, my. I was hearing radio uh, sound in all of this, and I realized what it is. That's <laughs> <laughs> my Pono player has decided all of a sudden to start playing Psycho Killer. Qu'est-ce que hey, so So we, we briefly mentioned it last week. What do you think? You've had it for a week now. Um, you know, I'm going to review it on Before You Buy. That's why I have it in studio. Oh, okay. Cool. I'll um, keep watching. I am. A, well, I'll give you the thumbnail. Cool. Um, I'm ex I, I want to support it because I really want to support the notion that you can buy high-res studio, uh, you know, recording quality recordings right. of your favorite music. And, um, and in order for that to work, we have to, you know, develop an ecosystem uh, of people who are willing to buy it. And that's always going to be a specialty. Although I have to say... Uh, the Pono Music Store, uh, HD Tracks, Bowers and Wilkins has a uh, Society of Sound. They all sell albums for you know seventeen, eighteen bucks. 
And so these are the the same albums we're familiar with. They've gone stu- back to f- effectively studio masters, right? So they've gone back to them and said, "Okay, wait a minute." We want the raw original data before yeah. you ran it through yeah. your compression, and and that's what they offer. Yeah. yeah, and most sometimes you'll get stuff with compression on it, um, both digital and audio. <laughs> um, but the but what what you're getting with this stuff is FLAC files, so they're they're losslessly compressed, um, and then the bit rate is, you know, varies. I mean, sometimes it's just uh, on some of these systems, it's just CD quality, forty four one by sixteen bits. But most of them are at least 24 bits. And then some of them are 96K. Some of them are 192K. You. Yeah. I mean, and big files. Big I, files. They're big files. I doubt you'd hear the difference. But nowadays with big hard drives, you know, uh, yeah. who cares? Yeah, it's a very good point. I, the, 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 the whole MP3 thing was designed back in a really lean, you know, storage and bandwidth and environment. Bandwidth, right. So, yeah. um, you know, I think we'll look back on this MP3 era as kind of just a uh, unfortunate blip. I'm hoping. <laughs> anyway, in order, to, but in order for this all to work, besides being able to buy the tracks, you need something to play back the tracks. For instance, Apple and iTunes will not play back high res tracks. They'll play back right. a certain degree, but not all the way. Um, but you can get DACs, digital uh, to analog converters, that will do 192.24. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you can get very high quality digital to analog converters, DACs. Um, and uh, so my Onkyo uh, AV receiver, for instance, has an excellent TI uh, DAC that does 192.24. Um, so I can listen on my stereo. I can actually play, put put on a USB key, put these high-risk tracks, pop it in the stereo, and listen on good headphones or on my, my good speakers. Nice. And it, you know what? Maybe it's psychology. I don't know. I think it sounds a lot better. <laughs> it's the soundstage is larger, is more detailed, is more open, is airier, brighter, yeah, cleaner. Yeah, the high ends are brighter, but you know what? Even the bass yeah. is more precise. It's not as it's you feel like yeah. it's it's more detailed. And then um, so, but the question is, you know, an iPod won't play it back. So Neil Young created this Pono P O N O player, PonoMusic.com, to basically be a high res iPod. But as you can see, I mean, it's it's a it's kind of bigger than an iPod. It's a triangle. In fact, you could put it on your desk and it could have your name on it, and it would be just about the size. <laughs> your name tag, yeah, right. of your desk name tag. Um, this one is I got it on Kickstarter because it was a Kickstarter project. So I have the Neil Young uh, limited edition. This is uh, two fifty one out of five hundred. But that was just because I was an early adopter. You still can you can buy them now. They're in their second manufacturing phase. It won't be available for a month or two. Four hundred bucks. Um, but they've put, they say, and I think they're right, a very good DAC in here, plus a good headphone amp. Because you're Actually, prob- I, I, I'm sure they did, because when they first announced it, I immediately went to yeah. the specs for the DAC that they were using, because I had not looked at ultra-high-resolution DACs for a long time. And uh, there's a lot there. I mean, you, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a black art to to merging the digital world and the analog world at that level of resolution right. because when you're when you're talking 24 bits I mean you're talking those bits are really small down at the least significant end and there's a lot of digital noise flying around so I mean it, it's an amazing piece of just technology to be able to convert 24 bits of digital data to analog um, with that kind of precision. It's really interesting from from an engineering standpoint. Well, and you know a lot about this because I know you worked in audio uh, as a student, and this is one of the things that you uh, are uh, kind of uh, pretty up on. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I... 
The problem is, and a lot of people say this, oh, it's all psychological. You know, it's the golden ears thing. You think you're getting better quality, so it's going to be better, sound better to you and all of that. And I can't you vouch know, for that one way or the other, you know. There has always been an audiophile uh, component to people who enjoy music, people who really want good speakers and good amplifiers. I mean, just who, you know, enjoy that. And so I, I think it's cool that there's an audiophile um, uh, an audiophile offering for, yeah. you know, within otherwise this, you know, white earbuds on the bus crowd. Well, well where, that's the other you know. thing. Because now, <laughs> now, okay, so now you got this. Now you got to either get, this has both headphone and line out. So now you either have to get really, really good headphones. Yeah. 400 bucks for this. That's nothing compared to the, <laughs> the headphones. Right. Or you have to hook it up to your stereo uh, via analog in. And, you know, if your stereo doesn't have a good, a good DAC, well, this could be in a way giving it a good DAC. Uh, but you want good, great speakers or great headphones to even ha- approximate it. Uh, but assuming you have that and you have the ears, I might be, I, I, we might be too old to really. I think I hear a difference. I think I yeah, really I, hear a difference. But I would just call it the, the last half a percent. And, you know, if you're someone who wants to push to get the last half a percent, then, hey, right, great. It was you know, interesting. It's not going to be a huge market, but it'll be, it'll be a market. Scott Wilkinson, our home theater geek, um, on his AVS forum, you know, he's the editor over there, uh, did a AB, blind AB comparison. He posted four files, two of them in CD quality, two of them high res, all flack. And he invited his um, uh, readers to download them and tell him which were which. And uh, he found an interesting result, which actually, to me, confirms that you can tell the difference if you're paying attention. The, of the read, and he also asked, what equipment are you listening? The readers that didn't have equipment that could handle higher resolution music, uh, 50-50. It was almost exactly wow. 50-50. The statistical odds for guessing. Expec- expectation, yes. Yeah, for right. guessing. Of the listeners who had equipment that could play back higher res files, 80% accurately picked the mm-hmm. high-res files. That, to me, says... That's more than statistical. That's That, to me, yeah. says that, that you can tell the difference. Maybe somebody 57 years old can't tell the difference, but somebody can tell the difference. Um, right. And, and I, it makes me happy just to buy the music in as high a quality as I can, and it's not that much more expensive. And you got store space now, so and big And I deal. can store it. Yeah. The yeah. whole collection, which is about 20 albums, because I'm not buying everything, just my favorite things, 60 gigs... It's not a lot. Now, that was a lot when a hard drive was two gigs. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, that that MFM drives were 20 megs. So, yeah, we were we were doing everything we could to squeeze music down. But 60 gigs now. I you know what? I put it on my Dropbox. I put it on my transporter because I want it because you you don't want to lose these. It's you can't you know, that's it. They're gone. Um, yeah. and uh and and I put it on my uh, on my pono. This has 128 gigs storage capacity. So nice. easy. Yeah. And classical music sounds beautiful, but but really my favorite albums are mostly rock and boy they sound great. Hmm. When they're Neat. not digitally recorded, a lot of albums when did they start using PCM recording in the 80s, 90s? So those you're going to get the original, you know, quality is going to be the same as the original PCM recordings, whatever they recorded at. Um, if it's tapes, oh. so for instance, I have Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks, one of my favorite albums recorded on tape, but the tape is analog. Yeah. So they master them still at a high bit rate, hoping to capture all the analog data. Right. So it's still, it seems to me would be better 
coming off the analog master in, in a high quality system to a high bit rate recording is going to be better than what you got on a CD. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Although, well, I mean, you know, a, a, a analog systems are are notoriously troublesome, too. You've got, I mean, remember Wow and Flutter, which are like real things. And then Hiss, you do have an, a, a signal-to-noise ratio on tape that that people like Dolby made their fortunes trying to overcome. Yeah. So what's really the best would be high-end, high-bandwidth high digital sampling right. that's then stored digitally and then returned to you digitally. Right. And then l let's hope that you can transduce that back into analog that your ears are able to accept. Or, we don't or yet have our digital interface. Or if they did it on tape, that the tape was going around really, 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 really fast. Well, and in fact, <laughs> that was one of the things they did was they ran the tape yeah. at a high speed high in speed. order to increase the signal-to-noise ratio. I yeah. have a recording which was clearly analog of uh, the Rite of Spring. It's uh, Leonard Bernstein and then, I guess, New York Philharmonic. And um, the dynamic range on Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is huge. It starts with one oboe or some woodwind. And you can hear <laughs> the air in the room. You can hear the musicians rustling. You can like hear... the, the flutter in You're the... You're in, in the room. Yeah, and there's and I as far as hiss goes, you hear no hiss on any of these recordings. Yeah, there's maybe a little hiss on the Stravinsky, but not much. But mostly, what you're hearing is the susurration of human respiration. Yeah, like being there. Anyway, uh, this is a security podcast, but I know you're really oh. interested in this stuff, so I think it's worth. Yeah. And yes, this uh, the Pono does a great job, but really, it's such a big topic. It's not just the Pono; it's about getting good speakers, good headphones, and all right. all the rest. Right. Okay. So to our topic, um, Microsoft having a really rough November. We we spoke last week, which was Patch Tuesday, the second Tuesday of November, about them dropping a basically a mega, and I called it a red alert um, set of updates because what was the third one in order? The uh, MS fourteen zero sixty six. That one. It, it was. I mean, it's it's funny because my impression I've since been reading echoed elsewhere um, was that they just sort of slipped it out there and didn't say much. And when I'm just scanning the details of it for the podcast, it's like what? And as as I said, I you know had to make a trip over to my <laughs> to my physical servers at level three in order to make sure they got through the process of of updating this because this one was not one I could allow stand. I should mention that I don't patch my servers every month because I have a, a very specifically designed constrained environment and a lot of stuff that affects other people like, you know, SQL server. I don't have any SQL server. I don't have any .NET stuff exposed or active server pages or any of that. So I'm able to, and I do, rather than just doing a wholesale update, I actually look at at each individual aspect of the patches. And I go, eh, I don't really, and in fact, I had not. There wasn't one since May of this year. When I looked, the last time I had installed patches, uh, Windows Update told me and my logs told me was um, 
uh, early in May of 2014. That was when there was one that I thought, okay, this one <laughs> I can't, I can't ignore. This one needs to get put in. And so at that at that point, I caught the system up. I caught my machines up with, you know, brought them current. Uh, but they've been idling since. Never, I never reboot them. They never crash. They they just run. Uh, but this this one was the the zero sixty six was a biggie. However, a couple days after Tuesday came the news that they had botched something about those four new cipher suites that they added. Our listeners will remember that last week is not only are they fixing some sort of a horrible vulnerability that we didn't know that much about, except they just said, this is a horrible vulnerability. There's no workarounds. There's no mitigations. Fix this. Um, and both for, on, for servers and for workstations. Um, and remember that they also added, which is unusual for Microsoft, to add functionality during a patch. Normally they do that later in the month. But for whatever reason, this included four new uh, TLS cipher suites. And they were good ones. They were Diffie-Hellman, which we like. They were uh, SHA-256 and 384. So good, strong uh, SHA-2 family hashes. I mean, you want those. Turns out they were broken. And so people who did follow Microsoft's advice and, uh, you know, implorings about getting their, their systems updated then began having uh, like random lockups and server crashes and huge problems because there were problems with the cipher suites. So the advice then came out a couple days later, uh, delete these from the registry and reboot your machine. The good news was, since I had already overridden the choice of Cypher suites to, to, to deliberately select the ones that I wanted, that overrode any automatic inclusion of the new bad ones, so I didn't have any trouble. But today, in addition to dropping another update which they had held back last week. So there so we have another up another completely different and and everyone is running around again saying this is really important update today. That is they did an out of band essentially, although technically they just held it back because they apparently weren't ready for it or it wasn't tested enough or whatever last week. Um so in addition to that, and this is important because this is not automatic. So everybody who's got IIS servers, I'm talking to you. You need to manually now re-download the MS14-066 patch and reapply it. They have reissued it as version 2. And so I will be doing that at the end after this podcast is through since all of this just came in this morning as I was, I was prepping things and I haven't had a chance to. Besides, I... I'm always twitchy about rebooting the server, and uh, so I wouldn't want to do it here <laughs> before the podcast. So, uh, but anyway, you've anyone who applied 066 last week, and everyone should have. Um, it's not so crucial for workstations, but eh, you might want to do it anyway. You need to go to the page and uh, MS14-066 and get it again manually, download it, and then reapply it. 
And so everybody who's using IIS in a in a web server role exposed to the internet should do that. This fixes whatever it was they broke in those four cipher suites. I imagine they'll push it at some point, but they're not pushing it now. They're not pushing it now. That's that's a good question, Lee. I I wonder maybe they're just a little gun shy after yeah. having messed it up last week. Yeah. So yeah, but you're right. They really ought to re-push it, and maybe they. Well, I'm sure they will, will but. Yeah. Next, next month. Yeah. And the bad guys and the good guys. I, I, I call, Okay. A range of hat colors from white through gray <laughs> into black are, in fact, pounding on what it was that Microsoft changed. I have seen disassemblies posted online of the patch. They have the the... The people of various hat colors have found the change that Microsoft made, and they are managing to get Windows servers to crash by by fuzzing the TLS handshake. So this is always the first stage of developing an exploit. So, and what is a concern is. Uh, and I didn't mention this last week. I should have. This is clearly wormable. So we haven't seen something like this since Code Red and Nimda and Blaster Worms, which were huge events on the Internet. This is of that scale because an unwitting server that um, supports secure connections could, once this evolves from crashing servers to running explicit code on servers, and that's, that'll be next week's news, um, then it becomes something where you, you know, the hackers are going to, you know, first they'll probably play around with trying to get into servers, depending on what, how much they're able to do through this exploit, but then they're going to want to just do a worm. And so that servers that are exploited start searching for other servers. And that was immediately where you went to last week, Leo, and you were correct about that, about the idea of, you know, comp uh, compromised servers then compromising others. Yeah, we know uh, that's or, how they work because – Or, the, yeah. or their users, yeah. Yeah, compromising a server doesn't get you as much as compromising everybody. Yeah. yeah. And so, is it almost always the case that if you can crash – you know, you could do a buffer overflow and crash an OS or crash a system that you're going to likely be able to figure out a way to then go to the next step and compromise uh, yeah. it. I don't, I don't know that we could say definitively one way or the other. It's certainly possible for there to be crash-only problems. Microsoft calls those denial-of-service um, right, vulnerabilities. Right. And we hear about those all the time. You know, half of, half of the Microsoft patches that we're receiving are not remote code execution. They're so-called denial of service. And, you know, we're used to thinking in terms of, you know, the, the bandwidth flood style DOS attack. But what Microsoft, when Microsoft uses the term, what they mean is you crashed the service, thus denying the service that you crashed. So a lot of these are just, you know, well, we could make the code path crash, but we weren't, by the nature of it, we weren't able to give it a payload. But, and so we just don't know. We won't know, you know, maybe this won't go any further, but we know that people are looking at it really hard. I mean, they're tearing this code apart, figuring out exactly what the code path is, and then 
they're certainly going to see whether, given what they learn, can they arrange to get a buffer executed. That's, of course, <laughs> that's the keys to the kingdom. So, uh, wow. so that's it's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Yep. Okay, now I got news a couple of days ago uh, from Firefox that it wanted to restart. And uh, so I always, you know, check to see what's going on. Uh, I got updated to 33.1. And then this morning for the podcast, I went to About Help and or, is it, oh, no, Help About. Um, and it said, oh, look, I've got something more. So they found and they did a little patch on one on 33.1. And now we're at 33.1.1. Here's the cool thing they added. That I that I really think is neat. Um, um, they call it forget, and it's a new means of of enhancing privacy. The traditional approaches are the so-called incognito browsing, where you know where you open a window or a tab or an instance. You know you 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 preemptively with expectation that you are going to be doing something you don't want the system to record for whatever reason. Um, that's the, that, that's been the traditional approach. Firefox version 33.1 adds a forget button that allows you, and I call it the regret button. Uh, <laughs> or the day after button. Exactly. That allows you to, to cause Firefox to expunge from its memory the previous five minutes, two hours, or day, or 24 hours. And so when, when 33.1 comes back up, it gives you a little song and dance to talk about its new features. And one of the things you can say is, oh, yes, I would like to, to have the forget button added to my toolbar you can still always access it through the menus of course but it just and it's a little it's a little sort of a spinny backwards arrow uh and i just thought that was really neat um, that's such a brilliant idea, idea i don't know why nobody's thought of that i mean every browser has an incognito mode now but the idea that you may not know you want to be incognito till after you visit that site it, right exactly Oops. which is why i think this is so clever <laughs> very good um, the the reason is from an implementation standpoint it is much trickier you're essentially you're having to do some sort of journaling or logging you know you you have like time passing and you, so you need to go back and rewind your state to an earlier time. That's from a, from a from an implementation standpoint. That's a lot trickier than than setting up an environment that you know you're going to flush so that none of its updates are recorded permanently. So so this is a little. I mean, from an implementation standpoint, I can I I appreciate that they're able to do this it's like oh that's very cool but i also a very handy feature so at this point firefox uh now has it and we i mean we ever talked about and this would be a great subject for a later date just what is forgotten and what is not forgotten in an incognito mode yeah good point uh, because obviously forgetting is only gonna, is gonna have limitations for instance you know when you enter an incognito mode I presume, well, maybe not, actually. Your IP well, we address would have to be sent to the site, wouldn't it? Or you wouldn't have a conversation. 
Yeah, so you're right. There is so the idea is it would be like cookies that that got set or caching of things that your browser received during that time. You know, the things that are normally sticky don't stick. They're they're kept in RAM. They're never written to disk, and they are when implemented correctly proactively overwritten before the memory that they were occupying is released back to the operating system. But it's but incognito is not necessarily anonymous. So the the things the browser is sending out in its in its query headers are probably still identifying. Um, but you but you're right. That would be it would be worth digging in and seeing whether browsers sanitize their queries right. in some fashion because right. because that would be another form of 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 anonymizing, which is really different than. Than, than forgetting on your local system. Yeah, and frankly, if that's the case, it's not something you could do retroactively. You can't retroactively sanitize <laughs> the conversation. Yes. Um, and so somebody's pointing out, this is really not so very different from clear browser history or clear cookies. It's just time. You could spe- specify the amount of time that you're clearing. Right, right. You be, yes, and, and it, you know, I, I'm sure we've all been in the position of where we have sometimes because we needed to or sometimes inadvertently we've we've over cleared our history like if you know if you clear your third party cookies baby well okay you know all of the semi static things that know you no longer know you so you're logging in everywhere again because you've said don't you know i i want to just scrub all of my yeah, sessions that's a pain when you do that it is it, it exactly and and that's the point is yeah. it if you knew that you only needed to go back you know that if like five minutes would repair whatever you had mistakenly done it's like oh good i just take five minutes please because i'd like to keep everything else i've been doing all morning yeah um also they built in uh sort of making it very easy to use the duck duck go um, anonymous searching uh, website as one of their like available offered searches. So that's the second thing that was added is it just it's built in, making it very easy for someone to choose non-tracking uh, searching uh, as an option on the Internet. So I thought that was nice. Speaking of what's not nice, flying dirt boxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Even so, the name should tell you something. You have boy. a nice little graph or a graphic here. Yeah, the front page. I always try to put something relevant to the podcast topics on the first page, the bottom half of the first page of the show notes. Um, and this is from the. This is the graphic. I don't know. Maybe it was the Wall Street Journal. They broke the story, yeah. but they're behind a paywall that I couldn't get past. So everyone was looking at CNN's coverage of. Of this from the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, behind the paywall, uh, but pe- every, it, it, it got picked up and widely covered because it upset people. The story, okay, we've talked in the last few months about the so the, the so-called fake cell towers, and it's we really need like cell. We need a better term than cell tower because there's nothing that's a tower about it, as I explained before. The idea it is looks more like a palm tree in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, well, what it really is is a briefcase. Um, in this you know, case, so, well, they've had this. What was it? The Stinger. 
Yes, yeah. and that was my point. Is we talked about those, uh, for example, in, uh, in in maybe in Las Vegas in casinos where or, or or law enforcement. We know of 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 municipalities all over the country that have these devices, which are essentially they are they're fake cell systems. Sites, you know, sites. Uh, you know, sites. Uh, unfortunately, cell tower is really the only term we have. But 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 I remember when you and I were talking about this before. You know, the question was, you know, could you, ha- if you traveled, could a could one of these hand off to a real cell tower? And it was no, because the way real cell towers hand off among each other is they're able to just switch the conversation from their feed to the, to, to the other tower's feed and make a seamless transition. In fact, that was really the, when, when we use the words, we're, when we use the term cellular, cell, that's what cellular means, is this really cool concept of a grid of, and it's actually a hexagon, ideally, of overlapping cells where each cell only has a short range and only needs to transact conversations within its radius. And then as a someone driving, in the classic example, drives out of that cell's coverage range, they're already in an adjoining cell's coverage. And by, and by looking at the relative signal strength, the, the, the outgoing cell can see that it's, it's beginning to lose lose this guy and 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 it's so it's so it's able to query the adjacent cells and say hey who sees this guy and one of the cell towers says hey i do and then so the the other cell tower says okay you take over and so that switch occurs without the user without without anyone in the conversation ever knowing that's cellular communications and so you're able to drive from you know san francisco to san diego potentially i mean it doesn't really work but <laughs> You know, I I had no idea that that's how it worked. I thought somehow the phone was involved, like, oh, I see a better tower. So it's actually the the, the towers that are communicating with one another and doing the handoff themselves. And and how negotiating, yeah, and negotiating that traffic. And so they and they get all kinds of interesting uh, information. For example, um, I don't know if we talked about it on this show. There was some guy who was driving somewhere in the Midwest on his commute with a very powerful cell jammer uh, thinking he was doing some civic good by preventing other motorists in his environment from having any conversations on their cell phones because you're not supposed to talk. (laughs) I know. And he was... That's horrible. It was horrible. And it went on for like several years and he was like blocking all emergency services and other stuff because it was just some horribly overpowered just blanket of the like the cone of silence driving down the freeway well this the cell carriers all noticed this pattern that repeated at commute time the same location the same place every time each day during the week not on the weekends and they caught him because they were able to associate this this moving zone of destruction through the cell system um, and and finally figured out, okay, that guy passes by the same time. Oh, there it is. For two yep. years. <laughs> this is the definition of dick behavior, ladies and gentlemen. 
Holy cow. He's going to face a $48,000 fine, by the way. Yeah, a ton of fines because yeah. it is, is absolutely illegal to do this. And so the, the point is that they, they, there, there's a monitoring of all this going on and the cellular system gets feedback. And so what they saw was like this weird dead zone traveling down the geographical ter- territory that was, you know, the freeway. <laughs> And finally put two and two together. Here's the story from The Verge. I'm loving this. By the way, it wasn't Verizon, AT&T, or Sprint that caught him. It was Metro PCS. Apparently, Verizon doesn't care. No. <laughs> they, ah, we, we see cells drop all the time. We got uh, your Reception money. was flatlining along the same point of I-4 in Florida twice each day. The FCC used, quote, sophisticated interference detection techniques. I've seen mm. the trucks. They, they're only... There's five or six of them. They're not a huge number, but they have these great trucks that can go out. Really cool Yagi yeah, antennas. Yeah, and track yeah. the stuff down. And um, officers, it was they found this guy in his Toyota Highlander. When officers finally pulled him over, it didn't take long to confirm their suspicions. As they approached his car, officers immediately noticed their radios lost all contact with dispatch. <laughs> Jammers, the FCC says, are illegal under any circumstances and can result in jail time. Wow. Yep. So that was, you know, um, we were talking about fixed um, or or, law enforcement based sort of suitcase things and and how they use these, um, you know, when people don't know they're there. Basically, these things are pretending to be cell towers. They get your phone to connect to them uh, for whatever law enforcement purposes they are alleging. What the Wall Street Journal discovered and has been picked up is that there are also small aircraft flying overhead with the same technology um, called, I mean, the, the, in, in, in the articles covering this, there's, it's, it's like fake airborne cell towers in quote, d- dragnet and inspect all phones below. So you can imagine the American civil liberties union, uh, is oh, yeah. unhappy. Chris, Chris Segoyan, who's their CTO, Sal Segoyan's brothers said, this is appalling. He says, I can't imagine even if it, that if a judge approved this, he even understood the the incredibly widespread nature. I mean, you're gathering as many as hundreds of thousands of phones in this yes. dragnet. Yes, you are. You are causing every cell phone within its range on the ground to preferentially connect to this fake flying cell tower. And, you know, law enforcement says that they're they're doing it uh, to catch bad guys. How is this different from the guy in Florida? Because aren't they breaking the cell phone when they do this? It's a very good question. Whether you, what, what, whether you know, can you hear me now? Can no, you hear me? Oh, it's sorry, a jammer. A I'm sorry, I'm talking a, to a dirt box. There's a government dirt box flying overhead. Yeah, 19 airports in the United States. These are Cessnas. They're small planes, and it, they say it covers not 90 percent of the U.S. population is covered by these flights. Wow. They say they gather what I what would they get? They would get the unique identifier for each phone. Yeah, they you know, g- generically we would say they get the metadata, uh which is 
uh, they, they say they're not messing with the conversation. We know that the we know that the boxes we were discussing before are. I mean, they're pretending to be cell towers. The decryption. There's no occurs. phone calls going through them, though, right? I mean, it's not. <laughs> we, as we've said before, with these stingers, you're not going to continue to have operation. No, but you are, but but they are monitoring the conversations of the cell phones that they're intercepting. You will get five bars briefly. That they- <laughs> <laughs> look over your head if you're getting five Boy. bars and you see a Cessna. Yeah, I have a I have a great connection to the spy tool. But as you pointed out, they there. couldn't do a handoff because they, they're not really in communication with the cell network. So you're gonna uh, it, your it, call's gonna be interrupted at some point. Yeah, it, it, you know we the problem is very little is known about this. Um, the government clams up, and and you know the the only problem I have is the secrecy. If if this weren't secret, then. Then, no. er, then, if, like, okay, justify your existence. No, no, it's I not. Mean, it's, it's it's a fishing expedition. They say right. they say just as the NSA does. No, no. If you're not a, a suspect, we let quote let go of the information. But you've got to imagine they're harvesting it and storing it in that giant facility in Utah, just as the NSA yeah. does. They collect everything. They say, look, we're we're not going to look at it if you're not a suspect. But if you ever became a suspect. <laughs> You could be right. pretty sure they, they would, would say, like to, well, we know where he was. Yeah, we would like to know where these people were. Um, uh, CNN contacted the Department of Justice for comment, and an official at the DOJ would not confirm or deny the use of flying spoof cell towers. He said any discussion would let criminals and foreign governments, quote, determine our capabilities and limitations. Which, you know, is just like, well, you can't make us talk, so we're not going to. And, of course, because this is metadata, it's not, you don't need a warrant. Right. Uh, and this is where, really, we've got to get the courts up to date, because metadata is valuable. It does have, is identifiable, ultimately, and has a huge uh, privacy implication. It's not just, you know, oh, metadata. And so this is like a pen register search. This is like when they go to the portals run by the phone companies to say hey where was leo on uh, friday you i mean we've discussed this of course in the context of snowden and and all of that but uh, you could easily make the case that metadata is a far richer source of of information for for research and plumbing even than knowing what the person's you know yammering about about their dry cleaning and, and you know and whether they need to remember to get cat food or, or what i mean you know who you talk to and when that you know your your six degrees of separation that's that's really vital information well, and we know it is because they want it because it helps them track terrorists so we know it's valuable and, you know, and we know that people knock on, you know, that, that the government knocks on people's doors saying, hey, you're a friend of so-and-so. Tell us about him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just what you're going to get. Isn't that nice? Yeah. yeah. So, OK, uh, AT&T uh, got some some props, I guess, is the <laughs> the current jargon. That's how the for kids en- say it. Yeah. Yeah. For ending their super cookie injection testing in air quotes on the other hand see in digging into this story further i'm less impressed um essentially what so first of all this is the verizon and at&t super cookie which their 
equipment is injecting into their subscribers' query headers. Um, I, de I detected it on both my AT&T and Verizon um, Wi-Fi accounts. So I, I saw it myself. As soon as I switched off Wi-Fi, which was preferentially handling my, my, my broadband, my Internet connection, then immediately I started to see the, their injection of these X hyphen, what, UIDH and other query headers, which contain a serial number, which is about me. You know, it is it is associated by my account with the carrier uh, and makes for a tracking super cookie. We know that it's actually being used. I mean, the the concern when we first talked about it was that it was overly strong. That is, it, the, the, unfortunately, the nature of what they're doing to inject a a something that's unshakable can't be deleted. You know, can't be. Uh, 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 incognitoized or regretterized or anything. I mean, this thing is stuck into your query after you've lost control of the traffic. Um, the concern was that third parties could also use it because all they had to care about was that it was static. Well, now we have evidence of that. In the developer notes for one of Twitter's acquisitions last year, a company called Mopub, uh, which bills itself as the world's largest mobile ad exchange, it explicitly uses Verizon's tag, the super cookie, to track and target cell phone users for ads pursuant to instructions on the software developers page. I have a link in the show notes where you can scan through. And in fact, I tweeted this link because as I was scanning through it, uh, just to verify that it was there, there's so much else there. It's just chilling. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 the ad, the, the guys that want to track us get a ton of stuff. And so again, the Verizon and AT&T super cookie are among what they get. Unfortunately, AT&T's suspension looks to be just temporary. I mean, they desperately want this. So they're calling what they were doing a test, which they have which they have ended and sort of rolled out an an end to it, although at no point are they saying they they learned a lesson. Um maybe they ended it as a function of some some backlash, although even that's not clear because they're still talking, even now in discussions of this being over, talking about, well, you know, creating a code that changes every 24 hours. And, of course, we've talked about the idea of changing the code, how if there's any other information that allows bridging between changes, then changing the code doesn't help. Um, but if nothing else, um, th there has been a certain, certainly there's been a bunch of backlash and, you know, the, 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 the companies are going to have to address the privacy concerns. Remember, this has been going on for years and it just only recently really came to the fore. So uh, at least it's a good thing that it did. Um, just this morning on November 18th, the EFF has announced an, an interesting initiative called Let's Encrypt. 
They have the domain name, letsencrypt.org. And it, next summer, so summer of 2015, they will be launching the EFF along with Mozilla and the University of Michigan and Cisco's involved and a couple other large companies. But I think primarily the EFF and Mozilla. This and is I think so great. Yes. Uh, it is a free certificate authority whose mission is, as the title implies, let's encrypt, to get the rest of the Internet encrypted by, by creating a facility which can issue free certificates. Now, um, more needs to be seen um, about how this is going to work. And, and in fact, um, I think very soon I'm going to cover the protocol. There, there's a protocol that's been developed called ACME, and I guess I we would pronounce it ACME. Yeah, of course uh, it is. Yeah. This, yeah. You know, so and, they're automating this so that they're, the, the cost of an extended cert, for instance, you can't make that free, but this will be automated. Correct. So ACME stands for Automated Certificate Management Environment. Cool. And what 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 little is known so far, and only little because I it, oh, this happened this morning, <laughs> and so I know I'm busy prepping for the podcast and pulling all of this together. Uh, GitHub has the protocol. There is so there's a JSON over HTTPS protocol. JSON, of course, is JavaScript object notation, which is the 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 approach that is sort of has won the war of XML and 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 other approaches for sending data back and forth. The idea being that somehow this is a this is a protocol between the server and the certificate authority. So presumably, and I'm just making this up at this point, uh, the certificate authority queries the server in some fashion for something. Uh, and there's there's a there's a conversation that involves this protocol, this ACME protocol, which allows the certificate authority to confirm the identity to some level of certainty, enough so that it's able to issue a certificate. And another part of this initiative that the EFF makes very clear is. They talk about how it can take a couple hours for for an IT person to bring up security on a web server that doesn't have it. Just because it's never been made easy. It's, you know, you got to dig into, you know, uh, man pages and and look through sort of strange cryptic. Uh, command line stuff and generate a certificate and send it to the CA and and get the result and fix it in, you know set it in and then then you got to bind it to ports and open ports and blah 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 anyway the point is that part of this is automating all of that too so that for whatever server families they support with this their goal is to make this one click that is you download something and you run it and it if like if you're running apache it knows about 
Apache config files and configuring and the Acme protocol. It downloads what it needs. It, it installs things. It edits the config files. The, 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 there's a complete uh, log of everything done, all configuration changes made so that you're able to back out or, you know, you're, you're able, first of all, to audit them and then back out of any or change any that you don't like. It then contacts the CA, this whatever whatever certificate authority this will be that will be established by summer of next year. And the CA, through this, this uh, interaction, gets enough confidence with DNS lookups. Um, oh, and apparently they will be also using um, uh, the uh, certificate transpa- Google certificate transparency logging system to, to, to further heighten their confidence in their ability to issue certs, which is good, for example. I don't want anybody else to be able to get a grc.com cert. So we, we absolutely need protection against misissuance um, and enough attention needs to be given to that, but that's pro- presumably that's what the protocol will do. Um, so it it won't it won't be able to issue, for example, extended validation certificates. But and, and that's good. We want those still to mean something. We want those to mean that that extended validation actually did occur. But the goal here is to over time make security ubiquitous and the way to do that is make it free and make it easy and this initiative this let's encrypt initiative uh the goal is to do both so i'll know everything about it next time we talk about it because it looks like a a perfect topic and you know kudos to uh, eff and mozilla and akamai and cisco and identrust because frankly google should be on that list it's because Google prompted this whole thing with uh, the change in how Chrome, uh, how Chrome deals with certs, right? I mean, they they kind of forced this HTTPS everywhere. Why aren't they doing this or involved in this? Put put Google put a little money into this, would you? Give us well, some twenty percent uh, time here. They, they they certainly are doing the right thing with certificate transparency, along with uh, Digicert, who's the only other commercial, the only other CA right now that is running uh, a a, uh, a certificate transparency. Facility because did did did, did just has been working with Google from the beginning on this, um, and but but you know Google is providing the stuff from their end. The other thing that is interesting, um, and this was mentioned along with this announcement, and that is the notion of short duration certificates. Remember that that what we have now because the issuing system. It is so burdensome. You know, it's annoying to have to go through all of this every two years or three years. I mean, even that period of time, it's like, oh, my God, you know, got to go figure out that again. I mean, it's, it's just long enough that you've completely forgotten how to do it. And then you have to figure it out again. So that's a clever design. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the alternative, if you think about it, is... Rather than having long life certificates, which you may need to revoke like early in their long life so that you kill them off for the balance of their otherwise valid period, imagine instead issuing short life certificates. If you were to issue certificates that like only were valid for a few days, 
then you never need to revoke them. You just stop issuing them and they expire. So so another interesting approach here is the whole no, the concept of you know, let's not worry about revoking certificates that have years of life left. Let's only issue certificates that never live more than a few days. But if we're going to do that, we have to make the process automated. We need to we need to have exactly something like this, some way for the server in in the same way that right now servers can reach out to the certificate authority and ask for updated uh, OCSP uh, um, uh, status. In, 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 if you were to implement an OC, you know, an OCSP must staple rule in order to say here is a recent reassertion from the certificate authority that this certificate is still good. I mean, clearly this is a kludge. So an alternative is that the cert lasts only a few days and the and the server daily goes and gets an updated certificate and it's only allowed to do that clearly if the certificate is still valid so it, it's a different model and this looks like a really interesting step in that direction so yeah i i, I i'm with you 100% leo this is a, a great looking uh initiative yeah yeah Excellent. and I would argue there's still a position for extended validation certificates or certificates that yeah. that 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 are asserting to a much stronger degree the identity so so, so all this is doing this is saying this domain is associated you know in DNS this domain name is 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 being served by this server. That's the assertion being made. So, so, so that's a distinction we need to make. That is, the, nowhere is EFF in this system, the let's encrypt technology, nowhere are they making an assertion about the entity that owns the domain. They're making an assertion about the domain name to IP and server mapping. That's what they're doing. So, and, and, and they're automating that and making it free. So that's valuable. But, you know, I want green in my URL and I want my, the browser to be able to make the assertion, this is Gibson Research Corporation and and someone a a certificate authority went to the trouble of like phoning us talking to us checking our dnb records you know verifying addresses and and flying you know, and, and a dirt box over you <laughs> and that there's you know there's a real organization here that's the role now for tomorrow's certificate authority in this new automated uh free certificate world but you know, not everyone needs that. Blogs don't need it. Small sites don't need it. But they'd like to have security. They'd like to have encryption. They'd like to have privacy of their communications. And note that none of this Verizon and AT&T super cookie stuff works if you've got HTTPS. That blocks it all. 
Isn't that good yeah. news? Yeah, we want to be. We want to do. In fact, Digicert gave us some certs. We just haven't because it's a lot of work. Apparently, uh, yeah. installed them. But uh, of course, we want to be able to offer HTTPS. But if somebody poses as twit, there's not a lot of harm there. I mean, it's not like we do e-commerce. But it'd be nice to be have a cert. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I'm I'm absolutely sure that there will be technology in place when they refer to using certificate transparency. Um, and some some other uh, online facilities for verifying somebody else would have a big difficulty issuing themselves a, a twit.tv cert yeah. because you're already right. you're you exist you, you your certificate is there um, you know and, and so so any I'm sure this system will will, will be making those will have those checks and balances to yeah. to prevent mi- misissuance. And by the and way, I, I donate monthly, uh, have a monthly subscription to uh, EFF, and I encourage everybody to do so. They just are so, they're they're doing yeah. God's work, EFF.org, yeah. to support them. And I, yeah, I, I literally have an automatic monthly uh, donation because it's just such a good, and I want to sustain it, you know. Yeah. So um, WhatsApp was in the news. They were, of course, acquired early this year, early in 2014, I think around February, for 19 billion dollars. 22 when you when you calculated the uh, inflated Facebook stock, it went up to ah, 22. 22. Nice. Yep, by Facebook uh, in a in a cash and stock offer. Um, they recently integrated Open Whisper Systems Text Secure into WhatsApp for Android. Oh, so awesome. Which is really cool. And it's enabled by default. So Text Secure, we were just speaking about because an independent audit of it, which was possible because it's open source, concluded that with a little tweak fixing something that was found, uh, which and the, the, the Text Secure guys already were on it by the time uh, this news was out, uh, it passed with flying colors with that one exception and that's being fixed. So WhatsApp, of course, is 600 million users worldwide. WhatsApp for Android has this. We're not quite sure when iOS integration will be happening, but we presume it will be. Um, the, the question I had, of course, is, okay, wait a minute. Uh, how does authentication happen? We know that, that there is a good secure handshake that that that's easy to do. It's easy to negotiate. The, the technology crypt- cryptographically for negotiating keys on the fly exists. But if you don't have authentication, then you're, subject, you're, you're, you're subjected to potential man-in-the-middle attacks. So I did a little digging because I hadn't looked at text secure closely. Um, as for secure, the security, that is the privacy of their messaging, they say text secure automatically detects, and then this is text secure in the WhatsApp app for Android, automatically detects when a message is received from another text secure user, which will mean another WhatsApp user, and prompts you to initiate and, and prompts you to initiate a secure session. If you choose to initiate the secure session, a key exchange will ensue and a lock icon will be displayed in the title bar 
of the conversation view as well as on the send button itself. So there's visuals showing you that this is now secure. A lock icon will also be displayed next to each encrypted message received in order to confirm that it was transmitted securely. That is, that your dialogue remains secure. But that still doesn't answer the question of authentication, which is crucial. Next, they said, under verifying keys, it is prudent to verify the identity key of a conversation's recipient in order to ensure that no man-in-the-middle attack has occurred. Because again, if you're, you, you can know that the, di- that the dialogue is encrypted, but unless you can verify the key, that, that the key you are encrypting with or encrypting to is actually owned by the person you believe you're having the conversation with, then somebody else could have imposed themselves in between. Yes, you've got privacy, except you've included a third party, which is certainly not your intention. So, in order to ensure that no man-in-the-middle attack has occurred, from the menu in a conversation, select Secure Session Options. And then under there is Verify Recipient Identity. This will present you with an option to manually verify the recipient key's fingerprint or to verify it by QR code scanning. If you're physically located in the same space as the recipient, you can select QR code scanning to quickly verify each other's fingerprints. This is like Threema. Yes, and this is the only way to do it. This is why, I mean, this is why Threema, what I liked about Threema was they got it. They put authentication right up out in front. That was the focus. And, but, but TechSecure has done it too. Uh, if you're remotely located, you can manually read the fingerprints to each other over the phone. So that's an out-of-band verif- Both of those are either optical or, you know, some other means, acoustic in this case, out-of-band verification, but that you need to do. It says, once you verify that the recipient's identity is correct, this information is saved and used to automatically authenticate future secure sessions with that recipient. So anyway, so they've nailed it. And so this technology is in WhatsApp for Android, probably coming soon to iOS. Um, and it's worth just once either, you know, showing each other's uh, WhatsApp's uh, QR code, you know, crossing that identity. And, you know, and the fingerprint is just a hash of the key. And so you can just, you know, read it over the phone or, you know, fax it or send it through email. I mean, you, you'd like the channel to be as secure as you think is necessary. The idea being, though, that you, you just once need to make sure that you've actually got the other person's, um, the, 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 the true other end's key. Once that's done, it's stored locally and it verifies all uh, further communications. So it's very nice that this is going mainstream. And once that happens, see, see the, 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 my problem with iMessage is they've sacrificed all of this in the name of convenience 
But in the process, we do not have a system that cannot be eavesdropped on. What Text Secure is giving us um, in WhatsApp is that an, a conversation that we absolutely know cannot be eavesdropped on because we're given the responsibility of managing the keys. It's the fact that Apple does it for us that is the Achilles heel in iMessage, which is not to say that, you know, they're, they're decrypting conversations. They're not, as far as we know, but we know they can. And if they so, were to, and if it were a demand from uh, uh, yes. federal law enforcement, they'd have to, and they might not be even able to tell you they are. We know that now, it would be. WhatsApp is not open source. So how do we verify that the implementation within WhatsApp is secure? Yeah, I think at that point you just increase the thickness of your tinfoil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can't be sure. But, uh, yeah. you know, the problem with uh, any of these solutions, 3 more Text Secure, is you have to get your friends to use it. And since Good point. WhatsApp is so widely used. Yes, that is the benefit. It's 600 millions worldwide now. And yes, yeah. and so it's way easier to overcome that with WhatsApp than it is with Threema. And I think you're seeing the benefit of the Facebook acquisition here because we know that Facebook yes. and Apple and Microsoft and Google hate it that the NSA is is demanding information from them. They all have transparency reports in which they're saying, we want to tell you, but we can't. What you know, we're, people are being asked to do. But this yeah, I mean, way, they're like, they secure they're, it. Right. They're the, these companies are suing the federal government right. for permission to talk. Right. So I think you could probably safely assume that f this this is why Facebook's doing this and they're making darn well sure that they don't have access to the keys because if they did then they'd yeah. have to hand over the data and they yeah. don't want to they don't want to exactly um now there's okay I, I'm not going to go off half cocked the way the rest of the industry has because there's some concern over BitTorrent sinks security and privacy it's just been raised um, everyone's running around suddenly saying, oh, my God, you know, we shouldn't be trusting BitTorrent Sync. Um, BitTorrent uh, has themselves, you know, in their own marketing side, claimed that Sync is performing eight times faster than Google Drive, 11 times faster than OneDrive, and 16 times faster than Dropbox. So that's their push. Of course, it's super popular among people who are using it because it is it is it's using the BitTorrent protocol, which is is strong and mature. Um, it allows it's it, it allows you basically to keep a whole bunch of of different devices all synchronized, um, and if one goes down, other ones are able to, to provide the data. The problem is that. Um, some some hackers. Uh, <laughs> I have to get, make sure I say this right because the the original term, of course, is "kachito uh, uh, ergo sum," and I, I think therefore I am right. And so these guys are hackito ergo sum. <laughs> I, hack, I hack, therefore I am. And Rene Descartes is spinning in his grave. Yes. So um, they're claiming that there are. <laughs> I know. <laughs> They're claiming that there are, quote, probable vulnerabilities in the client only because they've made it crash. So we know that crashing is not the same as takeover, but it's not a good sign. 
and that the protocol can leak potentially sensitive hash and client IP data. Well, okay, it's not content, it's hash. And anyway, so we're, we're again, we're, this just happened. Um, we'll, I'll follow this, and I'm sure my Twitter followers will, will make sure I see a, of any updates to this. I, I think it's way premature to worry. I know that BitTorrent is, is working now on a full rebuttal and response, which wasn't available at, at podcast time. Uh, so, uh, and I'm, I'm tied into them. They keep, I'm on their, their PR list. All I want is a protocol documentation. And instead I just get PR nonsense from them, from, from their PR people. But it's like, okay, fine. That's at least I know what they're saying. And of course, BitTorrent adamantly disagrees with that characterization. Well, just so. open, just give us the code. I know. Here's uh, something the chat room just told me about called Sync Thing that is open source. Same idea. Yep. Um, and uh, it has implementations for Windows, Linux, Mac, BSD, and Solaris, and it's uh, it's open. So may, you know, I mean, if it uses, I don't know if it uses Bit BitTorrent protocols. Those are those are widely known. Yes. Yeah. And there was uh, we talked about it on the podcast. There was a reverse engineering effort of the 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 BT Sync protocol. To, and I think that effort panned out. I mean, I think they figured out everything that was being done because it wasn't a huge change from the, the original BitTorrent protocol. They just had – they added a layer for doing, you know, inter-device uh, peer-to-peer syncing of, of files. So And sync thing works kind of similarly to BitTorrent sync. You just give people your ID number and they can sync with you. Nice. Yeah. I'll have to try that. This looks kind of cool. So, miscellaneous gizmos, miscellaneous things. Uh, you want to take a break? Yeah. We'll save the miscellaneous, and we still have questions, too. And we do. Uh, for just uh, a little bit. But I want to talk about shaving. Everybody knows Steve's predilection for a little thing, a little company called Harry's. And I was I was using them, Leo, just minutes before how, while you look were... Look how clean-shaven oh, you are. And not a goodness. nick, not a cut... No. <laughs> just you look. And good. I gotta say, I'm, I get tweets all the time from people who have done their own A, B, C, D comparisons, and they go, "Yep, I mean, yep. best shave ever." Um, you know, this is Movember. This is the month where people grow facial hair for uh, men's health awareness, and uh, Harry's wants to what? celebrate. Yeah, you didn't know about yeah. that, Movember? Hey, I just, I just shaved. Leo. <laughs> no, no, had but you've perfect, got a mustache. You're a Movember man. Excuse. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you're a Movember man. Movember, it's Movember. I don't have uh, to shave. So, those of you who are not shaving, fear not. You can continue to your Harry's subscription <laughs> after November. And Harry's is making a donation to the Movember fund to say, "Hey, no harm, no foul. It's okay. We're all guys here." Shaving is no fun, and you know that it's really kind of a well-known ploy. You give away the razor, and you make it up on the blades. And, boy, it doesn't take much to, to go to the local drugstore. You know those blades are, are a pricey because they're locked up. <laughs> you know, you can. they don't want anybody to shoplift the blades because they're like, what, four bucks a blade? You know, I, I when you buy a, my when I buy blades for my – or used to buy blades for my Fusion razor – I actually got sticker shock once. Uh, I was at the CVS and buying. I bought uh, like an eight pack of blades, oh, and oh. it was like forty bucks. And I said, uh, "No," <laughs> and I put it back. <laughs> oh. I put it back. Thank goodness I found Harry's, 
Harry's actually makes better blades than those big companies. Um, you know, what you're paying for with those big companies is big ads. Harry's makes great quality razors at about half the price because, well, for one thing, they own their own factory in Germany. When uh, Jeff and the gang who founded Harry's, Jeff uh, came from uh, another startup you might have heard of, Warby Parker. Same idea. Let's take an industry that's ridiculous, the margins are ridiculous, and uh, use the internet to kind of save people money and give them a great product. So he did. He, he said, well, we, we could do this with razors and blades. But And he did a lot of research, and he found out there were two factories, uh, both in Germany, that make the best blades, period. So he bought one. <laughs> they own the factory and all the production of the factory. Uh, they engineer for sharpness and high performance. The blades last a long time, but you know what's nice is you get the subscription every other month. You get your Harry's blades, so you should change them every week. You always have a nice, clean, fresh blade. Uh, you can also get kits from Harry's. In fact, I suggest you visit harrys.com and uh, get a kit. One of the uh, kits uh, we've got right here is the Truman. This is the one uh, Steve likes because you like the flat handle. It gives you an idea of which way is which. Yes, I'll, yeah. exactly. You get some orientation. I have the the uh, Churchill or Winston, I guess it's called. Good. Yeah, the Winston is a uh, is a little bit nicer, but it's <laughs> round, and that's why I didn't like it. Um, but both of them use these great Harry's uh, blades. Um, when you get the kit, fifteen dollars for the Truman kit, you will get uh, not only the the razor and a couple of blades, but you'll also get Harry's fabulous foaming shaving gel. Which, I'm now liking that. Uh, have by you the tried way. it now? That, that is. Oh, that's all I use. Yeah. Yes, I still use um, the. Uh, I have cream left over, and I like it. But I will move Boy, to this. That, yeah, yeah. I used it the other day on the show, and I thought it was kind of nice. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Remember that? Uh, oh yeah, everyone does. That was great. <laughs> I, I had the kit, and I said, "Well, let me let me just try a little Harry's." <clears throat> I want it does you to come try. out quickly. Yeah, you, you have to. It, I had a faceful. Yeah, it comes out very quickly. So um, warning. Anyway, I want you to visit harrys.com uh, slash products. Every kit gets a razor with a handle that looks and feels great. Actually, you get two blades in the box, and there's one on the handle. So it's a total of three blades, the foaming shave gel, the handle, 15 bucks. That is a deal. And each kit is, of course, guaranteed, satisfaction guaranteed. Uh, and then you get on, uh, I get the uh, subscription every other month with new new blades, new foam. Uh, I actually have several Harry's handles around the house, you just because you never know when you might want to shave. You just there it is, it's there. Um, so if you're not shaving for Movember, that's great, that's awesome. Um, Harry's is dev 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 donating the Movember fund to show their support. But if uh, if you're you know well, only two more weeks, maybe not even that long, you know if you if you're going to shave again, make your first shave the best shave of your life. Harry's h a r r y s dot com. And when you buy, use the offer code security now, support Movember, and they'll give you five bucks off your first purchase. But that's your first purchase only when you go to harrys.com and use the offer code security now, one word, at checkout. We love Harry's, and I love getting my Harry's gift. Quality craftsmanship, simple design, modern convenience, and a great shave at a fair price. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S, harrys.com. Calm. And if Steve looks sharp, it's because his Harry's blade is even sharper. So, All right. as expected, Sunday's twit discussion. Oh, thank you for helping us with that, by the way. Of net neutrality was 
was great. Um, I thought that was your your buddy Brett Glass, who's been on this show. Yeah, and I thought, and and your Sonic guy. I thought the the dialogue between yeah. Brett and and the and the Sonic guy, the Sonic .net Dane guy, Jasper, the founder of Sonic Net. Yeah, really, really useful. And uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone reached a conclusion. I don't think there is one. But uh, I, for for a, a, a sane, level tempered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just uh, mm-hmm. really thought-provoking dialogue. I wanted to make sure that our listeners remembered that that there was that the first hour of Twit last Sunday was that. Uh, it was oh, I, I thought really interesting uh, discussion. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, we were trying to you know shed more light than heat, and unfortunately, yeah. um, this is one of those things that if you don't, you know, kind of come down on the right side you hear from people uh, but we thought it was more important that people hear all of the pros and cons on each side so that they can make up their mind and uh, yeah the problem is it's complicated it is easy when, when yeah it is a complicated and where we are today is a mess right and so that like how do we how, how do we get from the mess we're in today to to something that makes sense and i mean i i completely agree with Brett, for example, saying that Title II is the wrong thing, but unfortunately, it's all we've got, and and so it's so you know the idea of reclassifying, reclassifying, reclassifying ISPs, um, you know, as uh, as common carriers and thereby subjecting them to all of Title II, you know, ISPs look at Title II and go, wow, this is awful. This, you know, this was written in the Stone Age compared to where, where we are. So, and, and, and as you guys said, one, one of the many suggestions, I think this was yours, was, well, you know, can we get legislators to start over, you know, do something correct? And, you know, the problem is, wow, what a heavy lift that is. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen either. You should listen. Uh, I think you'll have an opinion. Um and and then this is just the beginning of what we all need to go through some homework to figure out uh, what's the best solution. Yeah, I would argue no no conclusion is is reachable yet being informed. You know, you can always you can't ever have too much information. Right. And that's that first hour of Twit was really real this really useful discussion and and information. Twit four eighty four. Listen, if you have and, and I forgot to mention, last week I was going to mention that Twit in the previous week, Dvorak said he thought Security Now was your best podcast. Yeah, he loves you. It's like, holy, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed that he listens. Yeah, I like, yeah, he, he seems impatient. But, hello, you know, hello, John. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interstellar. Yes. Um this is going to seem so, so geeky. I mean, I you know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm normally not this geeky, I think. I don't sort of have a, a self-identity of being this geeky. But here was my problem. If they just, and this is, this doesn't really give it away, so there's no spoilers here because I've, you know, it's no need to go into that. If they just called it a spatial anomaly, then I would be fine with that. But they call it a black hole. And then it did not behave in any way like a black hole. 
And that annoyed me. So well, what specific? Because okay, so so for example, information can't come out past oh, well, the event silly. horizon yeah. of a black well, hole. That's why they had to go in. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, no, just, that's. But really, you know, Conan O'Brien said it best. He said people are worried about scientific inaccuracies in black hole, but it doesn't bother them that Matthew McConaughey is an astrophysicist. Yeah, it's a movie. Now I have okay, to the, point the, out that the Nolans wrote this based on the writings of Kip Thorne, who is an astrophysicist and a black hole expert. Kip was there the whole time they made the movie and did the calculations. And even Valium. Well, even he says that uh, the visualizations that the filmmakers make gave him some insight into this spinning black hole that he never would have had otherwise. It was very valuable for him. You know, the, the, the bad astronomer, uh, Phil Platt, said this is... You know, this whole thing of a planet being on the edge of a black hole is impossible. That, too. That was annoying. Well, then he took it back. He said, I'm sorry. This is a very special kind of anomaly. <laughs> it's a spinning black hole. It's a and, Hollywood anomaly. Well, no, Kip Thorne, I think, well. Oh, a, a spinning black hole. There okay. are such things, apparently, and the, and the that, physics of it and the calculations are very, true. very complex. As matter and condenses, you can you can get a lot of uh, rotation spin. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and um, Phil said, you know, the calculations on, on spinning black holes are, if you think calculations with black holes are complicated, these are more so. And he said, I, I apologize. I was wrong. There, this could... The, the planet on the edge of the black hole could exist, and the time anomaly they describe in the movie is possible. Okay, because of relativity, which gives your, your catch-all. Okay, here's the problem, though, and that is gravitational gradient. You cannot, in your spacesuit, fall into a black hole. I know. <laughs> you, you are shredded at the molecular I know, level. I know. Gravitational gradient, as they say, will get you every time. <laughs> And and so, you know, in Star Trek, I don't have a problem if if they make up absolute nonsense and call it like possible. I, my problem is if they take something that we know a lot about, we know a lot about the behavior of a black hole and then just ignore it all. So, um, however, I thought it was a great movie. I mean, it was fun. It was it was, you know, great special effects. And after about half an hour, Jenny nudged me and she said, this is different than I thought it was going to be. Because, yeah. of course, we spent a lot of time on the farm. It's very emotional. There's and, a lot of you know, stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, so. yeah. I thought it was a great movie. I think it will be considered a classic like 2001. By the way, just Oh, to, no. Oh, yeah. You watch. Really? Ten years from now, let's talk. And we know we'll be doing this show ten years from now. Yeah, I bet you nothing's going to stop. <laughs> it, it's, we're, we're in a black hole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, AMC has announced... That they are going to offer unlimited tickets for people who would like to see this movie an unlimited number of times. If you've already gone to an AMC... One was was more than enough. You you really will feel like seven years have gone by. I could not sit through that again. (laughs) They said uh, for 15 bucks, if you've already seen it once, you can buy an unlimited ticket to see as many times as you want. See, that's a safe bet for them. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice it was really loud? This is what Scott Wilkinson was talking about on uh, Saturday. I, I was very aware of the power of the soundtrack yeah. and that it really, if you didn't have that, you'd be like, okay, now what are they doing now? Right. Why, why, yeah, why right. What is he care? doing? Are we supposed to care about this? Is, is this that? dramatic or not? I really can't 100 tell. 100 dB plus. In fact, I think he measured it. He brought a sound meter. 
Talk about well, of course he did. I think he measured, he said, 117 dB at one point. Wow. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to put anybody off of So did you it. like it? Was it was really... Yeah, a little uh, bit. You liked it a little bit. You wouldn't go see it again. I, I No, I couldn't. It was two hours and 40 minutes. Long. That was a long movie. Yeah. And, uh, and just kind of, I don't know. I, 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 it was a little too pop for me. I guess that's what I, the way I would you put it. You wanted more science. Nice how everything wrapped up and, and it's like, okay, well, we don't have any loose ends. And, and, uh, and of course, there is the fundamental problem. And I don't want to, I can't really say more because I refuse to do a spoiler. But there's a, the, the big causality problem of, you know, yeah. you can't get that until you already have yeah. it. And then, so it's like, okay, it's a movie, well. Hey, Steve. All right. You got to have some, you know. You did? Did you like Back to the Future? Loved it. He saves his life by going back and making sure his parents meet. Yeah, I guess that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, he has a photograph and he starts uh, to disappear. He had a hoverboard. Oh, he had the hoverboard, hoverboard made it all right. Actually, I don't think that was that one. That was one of the. That was the uh, second one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> back to the Future again. Okay, there so is a movie though that you do want to see. Yes, 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 yes. Comes out Friday after Thanksgiving, November 28th. Um, and it is, I, I saw an interview, what was it on? I saw an interview somewhere of several of the actors who star in the movie. Uh, it's called The Imitation Game. And in fact, the website is theimitationgamemovie.com. And I think you can get the preview there. It's very dramatic looking with lots of stuff going on on, on the webpage. Um but anyway, it's uh, it's the history or the story of Alan Turing and Bletchley Park and their decryption of the German uh, Enigma machine ciphers and how vital it was and all of that. But apparently strong on being a tribute to, to Alan Turing. So um, yeah, we um, have a, a viewer who uh, saw it and said it's great and a heart wrencher. Um, so. How do I get this uh, site started here? I just, do I click? Do I rearrange? Seems like there's stuff going on. I had I had scripting off, of course. Oh, then so it worked. <laughs> it it, it kind of limped along and did stuff, but it, clearly really, a lot of attention was paid to it. There's some real scripting going on here. <laughs> wow. Wow, all right. Well, I'm not going to be able to see the trailer unless I solve this crypto game apparently i would imagine if you just put the um the imitation game into google uh, imdb probably has it with a lot less nonsense going on well now i've i've got to solve it all right go on <laughs> you know what the, i'll be uh, doing for the next hour one of the main actors not the ones that I I interviewed one who is not sympathetic i i was looking at him it's like why do i know him so well i mean i you are, we already know him but it's like why do i know him so well and he's like oh He's the evil father uh, king on a Game of Thrones. Oh, and so they brought him out for, to, to he's play. A, he's a good actor. Yeah, yeah, he really is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Look, looks like it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, and keeping in with our Q and A theme, I thought I would uh, answer a listener's and I because I encountered this re reading the mailbag. A answer a listener's question about uh, full disk encryption with Spinrite and SSDs. That had never come up before. Uh, Greg wrote, uh, he said, my routine before I do 
and, and I should mention before, he's apparently a Linux guy. My routine before I do full disk encryption is to spin write, to, to turn it into a verb, the hard disk drive at level five. So a full strength, deep spin write. The idea being to expose as much of the disk as possible before overwriting it with pseudo-random data. Following this, I install the encryption container using Linux's dm-crypt and lux, L-U-K-S. Considering the wear that SSDs incur from level 5 spinwrite, do you think this is a good idea to do on SSDs prior to overwriting them? For security, the SSD has to be overwritten prior to putting the encryption on. So the wear incurred is necessary. But does my use of level 5 before overwriting make sense to you from a security perspective? Or do you recommend I just use level 2 for SSDs that I want to encrypt? Um, my feeling is there, level 5 is what you want. Because once upon a time, when error correction was relatively weak on hard drives, um, and drives were a lot, slow, a lot smaller, um, Spinrite wrote a whole bunch of patterns. Its strongest pattern testing did a whole bunch of stuff. Now, because error correction, you know, as, in, as densities increased, the, out of necessity, the, the ability to do on-the-fly error correction has been strengthened dramatically. And, of course, chip density is higher, algorithm, that, that, that supports much stronger algorithms for correction. The, the chips are much faster, so they're able to do more on-the-fly and so forth. So as all of that scaled up and drive size scaled up, Spinrite's, the, 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 the surface analysis and testing that Spinrite had to do was scaled down in proportion. So now what Spinrite does is only two writes. It reads what's there, inverts it and writes that, reads that, inverts it again, and writes it back. So that's just two writes. Um, and we and, know that doesn't make it wrong. <laughs> Actually, because it's inverting, it puts them right back where they came from. There you go. Exactly. And then you're going to run encryption, which is going to go across the entire thing again. So if you did nothing, if you did no writing, then you'd, do, you'd write everything once. If you use level five on Spinrite, you're writing everything three times. And compared to the writing that you're going to be doing for the rest of the drive's life, that's nothing. So, I, I, and it does make sense, I think, to, to run Spinrite over an SSD to, to help the SSD immediately find any areas that it might want to swap out um, at that point. Now, one thing that you didn't mention and that everyone should think about is after you put encryption on the drive, you really then want to reset trim because both running Spinrite on an SSD where Spinrite is doing any writing 
or doing whole drive encryption will saturate the drive's trim bits. Remember that trim is a, an extra facility in SSDs to dramatically speed it up, where it it operates at the sort of at the physical level of the SSD to inform, to, to sort of remember whether anything useful has ever been written there. And if you if you run spinwrite on the drive on an empty drive, you've written nothing useful. So you absolutely want to run a trim clearing utility after that. And um, without giving away too much, that'll be an option in the future at my end. Um, but if you then encrypt the SSD, you're writing all the sectors again. So what you need is you need a you need to be able to run a some sort of trim clearing utility on the post encrypted SSD to get it to relax essentially to tell it that even though a lot of writing has been going on we don't care about any of that because then you're going to put the file system on the drive and that's going to be doing the first actual writing that we care about. So I would argue, I, I, I would look into post-encryption trim clearing um, on SSDs. I'll be able to do post-spin-write trim clearing, but that wouldn't help you in this case because you're, gonna, you're then going to write, write the entire drive uh, one more time. All right. And we'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to figure out how to do that. <laughs> there, are, there are lots of utilities for yeah. doing that. Why is this at the end of your show notes? That's at the end of the show notes. If you zoom it's a, in. It's a picture of a, uh, of a CD. It's actually a very special DVD ah. called an M-Disc. What is an M-Disc? Uh, and it's made by Hitachi. And something with an interesting name, uh, which I was able to pronounce. Uh, Milleniata. Uh, Milleniata. I love that. This refers to one of, I'm glad you asked the question, by the way, Leo. This refers to one of our five questions. This is a 1,000-year oh. archival storage. Milleniata. Literally written. Are you sitting down on your ball? I think you I are. I am. Literally written in stone. What? It doesn't use what? dyes. It uses inorganic material, basically stone. It melts the stone. Wow. And so it inscribes 4.7 gig uh, in stone. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Wow, we'll talk about that because our question and answer section has has arrived. Yes, and uh, we will start with question numero uno. Let me just take the millenniata out of the way. It's kind of a big... I blew it up. It's real big now, and I can't see the questions anymore. Uh, Advait, Advait in India wants to know about going uh, to your servers at level three. Steve, on the, uh, on the past episode, you said you had to physically go to your servers to update them for the S-channel bug. 
You now know you're going to have to do that again, apparently. Right. So, but why? So why do you need to go to them? Can't you just do it remotely? Well, that's a good question. I thought you could pretty much do all Windows Server maintenance remotely, including uh, power cycling if you have the right equipment. Don't most colos allow for remote power cycling? I know ours does. Just curious. Thanks. Love the show. Happy spin right owner, etc. Advait. So I just want to, I thought this was an interesting question. I had several other people ask, like, wait a minute, you know, why are you going there? And the only reason is I have been so well trained by Murphy. I am a disciple of Murphy. Yeah. And this was, as I mentioned, since I'm not rebooting them all the time, um, you know, I've like in this case, it's been six months since I've had to touch them. And that meant that I'd be doing a lot of patch catch-up. And, you know, we've all had the experience of, you know, doing a big update and rebooting our system and the screen stays black. And uh, for GRC, I just, I didn't want to be here at home, be, you know, clicking things, pressing buttons, waiting for the server to come back up and have it not. So I wanted to be there where I, you know, was was physically present and could deal with anything that might happen. Um, and, and as it was, I made fresh images and did some other, you know, just sort of, you know, clean up stuff. And, um, you know, I, I just never visit. So it was nice to sort of check in and it feels good to sort of see that everything's the way I left it. Um, and I think, frankly, this little update, I probably won't bother making a trip. Since I just did a week ago, I will make sure that I've got a, a, a current set of images and backups. But this one I will do remotely. So, And I have power control equipment and I can do power cycling and all that stuff remotely. But this seemed like, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's been six months. It's worth a trip. Yeah. And as it, as it happened, everything went just swimmingly. Oh, good. Oh, good. Charles Victorian, great name, in Houston, Texas, has some squirrel implementation help questions. Steve, longtime listener, blah, blah, blah. All episodes, blah, blah, blah. Security Now University graduate, etc. You and Leo Rock, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he actually wrote all of that, by the way, folks. I'm not making it up. In pondering a squirrel, I was wondering slash hoping for three important things. Would you please help with the creation of tools or libraries or simple instructions, etc.? so that web developers not on the rocket surgery level can easily implement your strategy for login. Dumbing it down may be important for this to catch on like wildfire. Two, would you please create a sample login page on your website, which would allow people using your Squirrel reference implementation or any other, really, to have a known working location to experiment with logging in via Squirrel. Three, would you please make an iOS Squirrel client yourself so that we know it's as TNO as possible. I, and perhaps many others, apply the TNOBS principle. Trust no one but Steve. We'd pay for that app. Not trying to be mean to other iOS devs, but they haven't earned your white hat reputation yet. I'm just saying. Thanks for all your hard work to both you and Leo. Okay, so a couple things. Um, um, other developers, for, so for, for the, the, the first point was... Uh, what about dumbing it down or um, making it easy to implement? There will be drop-in packages for all the major web server-side stuff, uh, Drupal and PHP libraries and all of that. That's all under, you know, in the works and underway, and there are some that are even up and running at this point. So 
So it won't be necessary for anyone to write this stuff from scratch, though once, I, once this is all absolutely finalized, I absolutely will have some simples like flowcharts of what API call you issue when. Uh, other people who are um, involved in the GRC news groups have asked for the same thing. Um, as for a sample login page, yes, absolutely. There's actually, it's already there, um, although it doesn't quite do much. Um, I'm using it myself for the, the, as I'm finishing the final phases of this, grc.com slash squirrel, S-Q-R-L slash demo dot H-T-M will present you with a valid squirrel QR code right now. And once you have the client, you can either click on it if it's, well, in fact, you would um, in, in your browser, click on it. Um, and Leo, if you refresh that, every time you refresh it, you'll see that you get a different, actually, you're, you're just blanking the whole page. So it's less easy to, easy to see on a Firefox. It just changes the QR code. It just goes it, blink. It's because everybody has gone to your page. Ah, uh, that's right. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, so, um, uh, so that will allow you to log in and create like a fake squirrel account and also like show you when you last logged in, how many you've logged in, when you've changed your identity, a whole bunch of other metrics and so forth. And then there will be another place. It'll be squirrel slash dump dot HTM that is, doesn't yet exist where all of the crypto stuff will be made visible so that developers will be able to see, to verify that you know their crypto exchange is the same thing that that GRC is seeing so that that, that stuff is easy to do i just haven't gotten around to it but the a, a, essentially a pseudo login facility where you create squirrel accounts uh, that's that's actually the database on the back end is already there i just haven't brought it out to the web surface yet and as for ios no um I'm going to be going immediately back to Spinrite six one and get and returning to the development of that. Um, I don't know of an iOS developer except that Ralph had mentioned. Ralph is the person who has done the Android client implementation that is up and running and works for Android that people can download. You, if you have an Android uh, device, you can get Squirrel for it right now. Um, although Ralph has not finalized it until I finalize mine, and we, there have been some protocol tweaks. Um, and he did m reference months ago doing one for iOS. Uh, I I'll be happy to work closely with any iOS developers uh, to, like, have it, you know, get my seal of approval. But that's the most I can do. I just I can't take any more time away from uh, spin right. Maybe after six one is behind me, we'll sort of see where things go. I also don't want to spend any time if it never gets off the ground because that would be sad. But uh, on the other hand, it, it help it will help to have an iOS implementation for it to get off the ground. So maybe I could say that the first iOS Squirrel implementations won't be the last, uh, and we'll just sort of have to play it by ear. Question three comes from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. James uh, is the one who told us about the Stone DVDs, uh, yep. the Millenniata, the M-Disc. Now, i got to point out, good for a thousand years, but yeah, a thousand years from now, who are you going to sue if it's not? Oh, man, yeah. it's not good for a thousand years. So it's a couple years old. It's called the M-Disc, just letter M and then DIS. Now, I wrote K, but I don't know if it's K or C. So sometimes disks are with a C. Uh, so 
Uh, and it was Mitsubishi that had acquired the rights and was going to produce the medium and the drives. I don't think this thing uses standard DVD writers. So I think you need, because, I mean, it is, it's, apparently it is stone. So it's going to use like a stronger laser. <laughs> I would hope it would use standard readers, however. I don't know either that way. That would be actually. an issue because a thousand years from now, if it's a non-standard reader, chances of getting one are slim. Very good point. A thousand, you know, that a thousand years is a long time, Leo. <laughs> Even ten years not, from now, sure. the chance of getting a reader <laughs> might be slim. So we had been talking about archiving, and uh, several people, one whom is a like a member of the archives, like archivist association, said. Uh, talked about the stone DVD and the M disc. So this is the real deal. If if you're somebody who wants to, for ha has a an interest in storing in allotments of 4.7 gig, that is a a a, a single sided DVD. Wait, that's that's Blu-ray density because a DVD isn't a DVD. No, that's that's no, DVD. Blu-ray is yeah. more than yeah. It oh, says uh, apparently uh, it does uh, say readable on current DVD and Blu-ray drives. So you can read ah. it. You just can't write it without a special writer. That absolutely you makes need a, sense. You need a chisel and a hammer. So they've kept the format identical to standard DVD. Yeah, I, I, a Blu-ray, of course, is in the 40 and 50 yeah. uh, gig uh, yeah. range. And a yeah, single-sided is 4.7. Right. So right. DVD, yeah. They apparently do make them in Blu-ray sizes. Probably want that. No kidding. Wow. Probably would want that. Uh, question number four. Dave in Southampton, United Kingdom, uh, wonders about data recovery on destroyed hard disks. Steve, in a team meeting, a sad and unfortunate story of a soldier in Afghanistan being killed by an IED was told. The story was used to highlight a security problem with hard disks because although the laptop he was carrying and the hard disk it contained were both destroyed, the data on the laptop was important and was retrieved by taking the disk apart and scanning it somehow to get some of the data back. The story was told to us to highlight the issue even after destroying hard disks simply by drilling a hole through them or taking them apart and cutting them to pieces with tin snips. This may not completely destroy the data that's on them. Now, I accept it's possible to get the data back from a disk that's been destroyed in this manner, although I will fall off my chair if you can tell me you will do it with spin right. <laughs> How hard is it to actually do, assuming the disk was not encrypted? What type of equipment would be needed to achieve such a task? How long could it possibly take? My current contention, until you tell me otherwise, is that it is extremely difficult to do, requires extremely expensive equipment and people. Let's assume that he is an attacker. You uh, may not get that data that's of any use to him. If I'm correct on this, then I would assume that an attacker who would have the resources to do this would also have the resources to place an insider in an organization because that would be a lot easier. <laughs> what do you think? Many thanks. Regards, Dave. P.S. If this answer uh, is heard on security now, please do not give my surname. Okay, someone from my team also listens. I get accused of rocking the proverbial boat again. <laughs> but you can give my location. So, um, okay. Uh, the, the only way to get data back at today's recording densities is to somehow put a disc that can still spin 
and aerodynamically support a flying head over its surface. In other words, it isn't bent. Right. Or, and it hasn't had tin snips or had, hasn't had a pattern of holes drilled through it, all of which would destroy the ability of, the, of a head to fly. Um, older generation drives may have had simpler recovery being feasible. Um, you, you could actually, there used to be a, a, a solution. You could, you could actually rub on a, an old style oxide disc and then look at it through a, through a magnif- through like a microscope and read the bits. You could actually see the bits because this fluid was affected by the, the magnetic domains stored on the oxide. But today's densities make that absolutely impossible. So if the story is not apocryphal, I mean, if it's, if it's, abs- if it's actually true that following an IED explosion, and it wasn't clear whether the bad side got the disc, you know, recovered the laptop and disc. It sounds like maybe our guys got it and were somehow able to recover it. The whole thing's but, made up. Come on. You know it's not a true story. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> the, the, the answer would be you, you could, I mean, if you really needed to recover it, you would take the drive apart and mount those platters in the same make and model of yeah. another drive and then maybe have I maybe suppose. have a chance. And we've talked about this before. It'd be possible. I mean, this is governmental level um, decryption. It is really, not, you, you'd have, you'd ha- yeah, it would be, oh no, it's absolutely it's not NSA. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's NSA labs absolutely need to recover the data level. Right. But, but again, the, our technology, the, as we, when we talk about this all the time, Hard drive storage is so fragile that it barely works on a good day. So, you know, subjecting a drive to any kind of physical trauma, forget about it. I mean, it's it's yeah. especially tin snips and, and drilling holes with drills. It's, uh, that, it really does end, it's, it's end hypothetical. Life. It's hypothetical. It, it's hypothetically possible that you could read somehow the magnetic... Uh, field on the disc if you had extraordinarily sensitive equipment and then somehow hypothetically assemble it. You know, when we've heard of people do kind of outrageous things like reassemble and, shredder uh, pages. Well, and yes, and but see, there there you have the benefit of them being physical things. Right, you can look at because, it. Because, because anyone who actually knows what happens between the user submitting 110011 and what's written will really appreciate there's there's four different stages of translation uh, and one of them is called whitening where it it its goal is to average the number of transitions per linear uh, extent in order to keep the the right amplifier from being too much biased in one direction or the other. So like my point is that even the even the magnetic image on the drive is dist- only distantly related to the data that was originally written and only the all of the electronics and data recovery 
in the read path of the drive that wrote it even knows how to translate the magnetic information back to the usable user data so so even if you had the 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 if you if you could even get the actual magnetic patterns that's not the data that was written on the drive right. you have to go back through the read process and how do you do that right yeah 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 not to worry not to worry final question uh from charles in the is it the final question actually i didn't check yeah yeah charles in the uk uh we're talking about brute force encryption there's one thing with brute force attacks brute force attacks against encryption against encryption that always left me perplexed how do you know you succeeded how do you know the results of decrypting with a key is a success if you don't know what to expect you know, this is a great question, and it comes up all the time. And normally, it, it, I just we, we run out of space. I thought, okay, today, question number five, since we got so much to talk about at the top of the show, and as it turns out, our timing was about right. Um, okay, let's look at two examples. The, way to, the only way to answer the question is to actually drop it into the real world. Two examples. The first is, and two relevant examples. The first is communications. With a with an SSL TLS connection, um, and the issue is brute force determination of the key. How do we know? Well, as we mentioned recently, unfortunately, SSL got the order of authentication and encryption wrong. They got it backwards. The original designers, uh, the well-meaning guys at Netscape, they said, we're going to take the user's data. We're then going to authenticate the data, that is, run an HMAC over it or whatever, and, and have the authentication added to the end. Then we're going to encrypt it. That's unfortunately wrong. Uh, as we discussed then, the well understood now in contemporary crypto uh, knowledge is you always encrypt, then you authenticate. Because the process of decryption requires a reversal of steps. So that means if you encrypt, then authenticate, which is correct, but unfortunately not what SSL does, then that means the first thing you do when you need to decrypt is to authenticate, then decrypt. But with SSL, it's backwards, which means that the last thing done is encryption, which means the first thing we do is decryption. And that means that we can always test to see whether our decryption was correct because we then verify authentication. And so... SSL, um, by, by doing it in that order, the only good side, I mean, there's other bad aspects to it, but in this case, we can do a trial decryption and then a trial authentication. And if the key is wrong, we will have decrypted the wrong data, which will not authenticate. And so in the case of communications flow, we're able to, to verify by checking the authentication. The second real-world example, completely different, 
is stolen passwords, which you know we're talking about with websites all the time. Somebody gets a database of password information belonging to some website. Now, what do they have? They have the hashes of the user's passwords. So what they're looking at, what they have is the result of the input password being hashed through whatever algorithm the site uses, which they presumably know, because that's typically part of what they're able to figure out in order to, in order to crack this. So the goal is they've, they've stolen the password database. They want to determine the input. They want to, they want to determine the input passphrase that when run through the hashing algorithm, whatever it is, how many iterations of, of algorithm it might be, how, how much strengthening it has and so forth, they want to determine the input passphrase that results in the hash that they have in the database. So they're not actually decrypting that hash in the database. Rather, they are they're successively you could think of it as encrypting or enhashing. They're successively hashing guesses to see if they get the same result. The reason is, if they get the same result, then they have figured out almost certainly the user's password, or at least a password, that results in the same hash, which then allows them to go to that website and log in as that user. And if the user has been unwise and reused that same password elsewhere and they have any other information about the user that they also stole, like their email address, name, and so forth, maybe they can use that same information to log into other websites to impersonate the user. So those are two examples. In one case, the authentication, which is part of the, part of the integrity guarantee of communications, it can be used to verify the decryption is that they get the guess is correct. And in the instance of password database being stolen, you, you're not really decrypting what, what, the, what, what the database had, but rather you're, you're doing the same thing the server did when the user enters their password to, to get a result. You know the result, so now you just make a lot of guesses until you get the same result. And that's how it works in the real world. Excellent. Or you just, as somebody in the chat room said, <laughs> you shout, I have the message, versus I have the message, Z4391X, exclamation mark, U, T, T, Y, none of them. Right? Usually it's pretty obvious. <laughs> hey, uh, Mr. G, that concludes this edition of the fabulous Security Now podcast. Each and every week we meet and talk about uh, the latest issues in security. Next week, do you know yet or is it going to be a surprise? Don't know. Um, I'm really curious about this ACME protocol, which yeah. the EFF is using. Um, and to what degree, you know, how much they're doing. I want to see how much is there. So if there's enough there, 
we might talk about that. Otherwise, I've got a long list of stuff to get to. So, well, I'll, I'll pick always. something. You yes, can find Steve it, on the uh, internet at uh, grc.com. That's his home on the web. He also has a lot of stuff there you might want, including Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all the freebies like crazy he gives away. Um, you'll also find 16 kilobit audio of this show and transcripts written by Elaine Ferris, so they're very easy to read and yep. a good thing to read along while you're listening. Steve's on the Twitter, at SGGRC. Questions to Steve can be given uh, forwarded to him uh, from grc.com slash feedback. We have full-quality versions of the show, uh, audio and video available at our site, twit.tv slash SN on youtube.com slash security now, and wherever finer podcasts are aggregated for later distribution through the Internet Network of Networks. Mr. G? <laughs> As Brett reminded us, it's actually not owned by anyone. It's an Internet of Networks. It's an Internet of oh. Networks. A okay, net of Brett. Networks. Leo, always a pleasure. I will uh, be back with you next week. Thank you, sir. See you. Security.